Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. For weeks, U.S. President Joe Biden's ambitious climate plan seemed to be on its last legs. But the U.S. Senate just passed a bill with $370 billion of new spending to lower emissions and boost the green transition. It's a huge relief for those who want to see climate action from the world's biggest economy. But Biden didn't get everything he wanted. To get this bill through political gridlock, compromises were made. The plan is full of incentives for businesses and people to make greener choices, but a landmark policy that would push utilities to produce more clean electricity was taken out of the bill to get the votes necessary. Today, we'll hear from an emissions modeler who's run the numbers and is optimistic about how this bill will get the U.S. close to its climate goals. And last year, 619 people in British Columbia died during an extreme heat wave in the summer. According to the coroner, many of them died alone, without help, some before paramedics even arrived on the scene. But there's safety in community. We'll hear today about a neighborhood group in Vancouver working directly with residents to protect them from the increasing heat. Also today, are polar bears the right image for impending climate catastrophe? We'll take a look at how these carnivores of the north became the symbol of a warming planet and why the link between them and climate change is a bit more complicated. I'm Anayat Singh, in for Laura Lynch. Welcome to What on Earth. The yeas are 50, the nays are 50. The Senate being equally divided, the Vice President votes in the affirmative, and the bill, as amended, is passed. And with that tie-breaking vote from U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, the Senate passed the largest single climate investment bill in its history. The bill is called the Inflation Reduction Act. The name belies some of its impact. Advocates and scientists say it could cut emissions from the U.S. by around 40% by 2030. Anand Gopal was one of the people crunching those numbers. He's the executive director of strategy and policy at Energy Innovation. Anand, hello. Hi, it's nice to be here. This bill works out to $369 billion in funding for the green economy. You model what that means for emissions. Uh, What did you find? We found that... um Despite the name of the bill having nothing to do with climate on it, at its heart, this bill is dramatically important for the United States in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Our modeling shows that it's going to reduce emissions relative to 2005 levels in 2030 for the U.S. by between 37% to 41%. If implemented well, Uh, should allow the Biden administration to get within shouting distance of its commitments under the the Paris Agreement, uh, which is 50 to 52% reductions by 
uh, over 2005 levels in 2030. So almost there. In fact, if you do the math correctly, it gets the Biden administration within two thirds of its 20, 2030 emissions reductions targets. Almost there, but there's still a gap. How do we bridge that gap? The best ways to bridge that gap is through a series of federal executive actions, particularly through the Environmental Protection Agency, state actions, and some local actions, and hopefully companies towards the, uh, as they realize how beneficial it is to, to be climate consistent will also step up and run a little bit ahead of policy in some, uh, some areas. Now, were you surprised uh, with the results when you ran the numbers? We were, actually. Um, we went into running the, the results of all the provisions in the act. Uh, by the way, we scrambled on this. Uh, we only had four or five days to, to look, take a look, good, good look at the solutions here that were offered. Uh, I was not sure that um, a bill that is primarily structured as a series of pretty large incentives would lead to such substantial reductions. So we were very positively surprised um, and in a very good way. The U.S. is a net exporter of fossil fuels, though. So a lot of what the U.S. produces gets burned in other places. Did your modeling account for that? Yes. So just to be clear, the, you, are, you are correct in one sense that the uh, emissions numbers we are reporting is for U.S. reductions. But what happens in, the, in our modeling when we look at the Inflation Reduction Act is the um, fossil fuels that are produced from these oil and gas leases, leases from the IRA, a significant portion of those will actually be balanced out by supply changes on non-federal lands. So we're not actually seeing much of an increase in, uh, in exports. Um, so it's not a significant factor. Uh, we did not count that in the 37 to 41%. But if we did, you know, they're not going to really increase emissions by, you know, even on a global stage by, by even 1%. It's going to be less than that. Now, there are critics who say that the models have assumed a generous amount of carbon capture and storage to bring emissions down. Those technologies haven't developed as fast as fossil fuel companies in particular have promised. How big a factor were those technologies in the modeling you did? In our modeling, carbon capture and sequestration is actually quite a tiny portion of the emission savings, uh, something of the order of, I think, 40 million metric tons, which is um, the overall savings we're seeing from the bill is almost one gigaton, so it's pretty tiny for us. The green transition is already happening, and the cost of renewables is already in freefall. For example, solar. Um, what more does this bill bring to the table? Yeah, this is actually an important point. The bill, and in fact, lots of policy lately, is pushing something where the where the momentum is already you know on our side. But remember, the climate is a physical problem. So yes, these technology transitions are going to happen even if there's very limited policy interventions. But to get to 1.5C, we need to see the world shift over from a fossil fuel dependent to a clean economy at lightning speed. And normal technology transitions don't go as fast if you don't lean in quite heavily with as much support as you can give for the new technologies to take over. That's why this bill is really important. There are some substantial climate justice provisions in the bill, about roughly $60 billion. Can you tell us a bit about those? 
Yes, um, there are significant uh, climate justice benefits, environmental justice. Uh, one of the largest ones there is this greenhouse gas reduction fund, which provides grants to state, local, regional, and tribal programs that, that in turn provide financial support to have low and zero carbon technologies um, for deployment um, in uh, environmental justice communities. There's also significant funding to clean up ports in uh, environmental justice communities. And importantly, there is some, for the first time ever, the U.S. is providing incentives for zero emission heavy duty trucks, which cause a disproportionate share of their pollution in highway, highway and port communities around the country. And this should really spur and accelerate the transition uh, towards zero emission trucking. Uh, these are only some of the provisions. There's many others. There's Rural Energy for America program that also provides assistance for clean energy technologies in rural communities. The EV tax credit actually has a used vehicle tax credit for lower income households and so on. There's, they're embedded all across the bill and many of them are trying to ensure at least that lower income communities reap the benefits of these really good technologies that households are all going to get. Um, the irony of solving climate at this stage is you can solve climate and actually get better and more convenient appliances and vehicles for your house. Now, this bill squeaked through the Senate. Uh, you know, it was split. Uh, no Republican voted for it. And Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, was a major wild card. How surprised were you that he decided to support it? I was surprised given that uh, just three weeks before, uh, Joe Manchin appeared to publicly walk away from the negotiations on this bill. Uh, and I think this is really important for lots of people to understand. I mean, there's certainly, the bill is not perfect. And we at Energy Innovation, who've been working on climate for 20 years, don't see it as perfect. But the reality of the US Senate is it's an extremely knife-edge um, situation with a uh, two fairly conservative Democrats who control everything in terms of what gets in and what doesn't. Given that situation, I think um, I'm I was very surprised that the biggest climate provisions, the ones that matter the most for emissions, that were passed in the House in November, survived and made it through to the very end. What was involved in getting his signature on this bill? Well, it was mainly these oil and gas leasing provisions that he wanted. Uh, and and I think that's where, uh, when we started modeling, uh, and that's where there's still a lot of doubt as to whether they're, um, you know, that they are bad enough to kill all of the benefits. And we find, you know, it's just one to 24, one ton of emissions added for 24, 24 tons reduced. And this is not to belittle the impact that these pipelines and oil and gas drilling is going to have on communities nearby and all, all the climate community should do whatever is possible to make sure that that impact is minimized or even doesn't happen. Uh, but that was the main compromise to, uh, to get Joe Manchin on board. Um, and then a few small things, like he wanted some of the structure of the clean energy tax credits to be a little bit more easy for carbon capture, sequestration, and hydrogen to access. But those are so marginal that the technologies that are going to be more competitive will win out. And that's why in our power sector modeling, we actually don't see that much uptake of carbon capture and sequestration. 
So these concessions that were involved to win his support, do you see them as major concessions that uh, undermine this bill? They're definitely not major enough to undermine the bill. They are not ideal, and I wouldn't write the bill like this, um, but they are, uh, the, the, it, let's just say that whoever was negotiating with Manchin struck a good deal at the end of the day for the climate. You mentioned the incentives in this bill, tax credits factor into the act. What do you make of those credits as a policy lever? They are pretty fundamental. A lot of the tax credits here target um, renewable energy, clean energy of other types as well, like um, including ge- geothermal and uh, one of the most important uh, new technologies that are going to be very uh, pivotal to the U.S. goal is offshore wind. Um, and also the other thing to keep in mind about tax credits in this bill is it extends beyond the generation of, uh, of electricity. There is tax credits for battery storage there's tax credits for solar manufacturing, wind manufacturing, battery manufacturing, and all of those in the United States. And so essentially these tax credits, the way the bill is structured, turns out to be some of the most important components for actual emissions reduction. And you'll also note that a lot of these are also fundamentally industrial policy. They're aimed at producing the technologies that will power a clean economy in the U.S., So, you know, how do you think that compares with something like the clean electricity standard that was shot down and is no longer part of this bill? This is actually an excellent question. So if you were to do a climate policy right with attention to what is most effective, ideally you'd want to have standards and you want to have incentives. The political reality that we discussed earlier about the sort of knife-edge Senate and Joe Manchin's preferences tilted this bill to be mostly about what we can call carrots, lots of incentives. And that's also why it's really important that the US EPA comes in now and actually set standards because they have the authority to do so for the power sector. They have the authority to do so for transportation industry and buildings. And if they do that, then all of these um, scenarios, we model the range which we would estimate in terms of where we would get would narrow. We would have much more certainty about how much emissions reductions we can get. So we see standards as important. They need to come in behind this this act. This act also makes standards more um, likely to be stronger because what they do is they lower the cost of the cleaner technology option, which makes it easier to ask companies to deploy more of it. So this bill isn't perfect, but your modeling says that it will get the U.S. to cut emissions significantly. What can a country like Canada take away from this as it works towards its own net zero targets? I think Canada um, would, you know, I think one thing that is important is that there's some level of friendly competition here is probably not a bad thing because it is at the end of the day cutting emissions. So if Canada also introduces legis- legislation as well as like set tar- small, strong targets for its own emissions trajectory, I think that would, be, that would be great. Also, I think one important thing to keep in mind is we are in a different era, and this applies across the globe. The clean energy technologies that were at once time perceived as more expensive and actually kind of a sacrifice to invest in are now getting cheaper and likely to get much cheaper. 
they result in much better products, just like quieter, more high quality for the average person in every country that uses them. And so I would urge Canada or any other country to view climate action as something that is actually a, a direct and immediate improvement on everyone's everyday lives. Anand Gopal, thank you. Thank you. You are listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. On demand at CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Inayat Singh, sitting in for Laura Lynch. Temperatures have soared across Canada this summer. In BC, last year's heat wave killed hundreds. Now, local organizations are finding new ways to help people cope and stay safe in the extreme heat. Our producer Rachel Sanders went out to visit one neighborhood group that's working to do just that. Hi there, CBC. Hi there, yes. Rachel? Um, Hi. This is lovely Siobhan. Siobhan. Gordon Neighborhood House sits nestled in the tree-lined streets of Vancouver's West End. The welcoming grey and white building hung with rainbow flags perches at the edge of a lush plaza surrounded by tall apartment towers. It's been here for 80 years, providing services to people of all ages. People like Christina. At my age, not much bothers you apart from the heat, probably. Hi, I'm Christina. I've lived in the West End 50 years, and unfortunately, although I have a beautiful apartment, I face south and it's incredibly hot. So I really suffer during the summertime with the heat. During last year's heat dome, when temperatures rose into the 40s, Christina couldn't keep her apartment cool. The best thing for me is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I decide to do my washing and I go down to the basement where it's cool. I take water and a book and I spend two hours doing my washing and being cool. I mean, the cooling stations are a good idea, but for me personally... I get so hot that the idea of going out, I couldn't even consider it. So I I stay home and I go to the cool place in the building. Gordon Neighborhood House Executive Director Siobhan Palowski says last year's heat dome came as a shock and the neighborhood suffered terrible losses. The heat dome last year really hit this neighborhood hard. We have a lot of these tall towers like the one here beside us with these great big windows and some of the effect of that is that they end up being little greenhouses and there's people in there living alone. So we had quite a few folks in this neighborhood who unfortunately did not make it through the heat dome, which was really quite traumatic for our community, for our neighborhood house, um, and a real call to action that something needed to change, not just in how we prepare for heat, but in how we prepare for a changing climate more generally. Wow, that's devastating. How did that event change how you think about climate change? It certainly made it very present, right? Because we knew that this was something that was happening in the world around us. It's not something that we incorporated into our day-to-day or even seasonal planning until this year. Starting first with the heat dome and then followed by the floods that happened later that fall. More and more, it's something that we have to think about as we build contingency plans for everything that we do. Some of those plans involve cool kits, small plastic bins filled with supplies. So this is about half of our cool kits. So we have here some 
directions printed in multiple languages. In our community, there's a lot of Spanish speakers, Mandarin speakers, uh, Ukrainian and Russian speakers, and Farsi speakers. That's a water bottle uh, reminding folks to stay hydrated. These are reusable gel packs that can go in the freezer. You can put them on your neck. Um, this is a spray bottle, an enormous thermometer that hopefully everyone can read, a cooling towel, and then this itself is good for giving yourself a foot bath, another way to lose heat quite quickly. So we put these together with the help of the City of Vancouver. Um, I know they're available at multiple neighborhood houses and organizations across the city. I think we've given out about 80 of them. Uh, we just put them together a couple of weeks ago, and then we've got another couple hundred, I think, to go. I've arrived at the house during their regular seniors' lunch. Today there was sockeye salmon on the menu, caught on the Skeena River and donated by the Lakwalam's First Nation. But there's more than just good food on offer today. Siobhan and her staff are making sure people are staying safe. They're distributing the cool kits and talking about their heat safety plan. If it gets really hot, what we're going to do is we're going to be giving you guys a call to make sure that you're all okay. And if it gets really, really hot, we're going to send our bus out across the West End. We'll pick up anybody who wants it. We'll go down to a nice air-conditioned mall and we'll go shopping until it cools down. So that's our plan. I'm seeing some thumbs up. We're going to do some heat trivia. Um, the prize is a ticket for a free lunch. So listen up. Yeah. Yeah, so you can get a free lunch. Alright, the heat starts to become dangerous for vulnerable people. A, 25 degrees Celsius. B, 31 degrees Celsius. C, 35 degrees. And D, 39 degrees. 31, that's right! So, However, when it gets to 25, you should still stay in the shade, do what you can to stay cool, but 31 is when it starts to get truly dangerous for vulnerable people. Outside the house, Siobhan and the staff set up on the plaza to help people cope with the heat. So this is a community cooler. We've got water bottles, most of the Gatorade's gone now. Community members are welcome to leave a cool drink or pick up a cool drink. We're going to be installing these all along Comox Street. So when folks are walking up and down the big hill in the West End, wanting to go down to an air-conditioned space, that way they'll have access to cool drinks along the way and opportunities to cool down. And so there's seating along the way. We'll have these coolers out. We're going to try and put sunscreen and hats in them as well. And they'll be manned primarily by volunteers. Yeah, we've got a misting station out. I've been happy to see community members walking by and using it. Um, that's one of the best ways to cool yourself down is to get your clothes or your skin wet and fan yourself. Oh, it feels so good as well. <laughs> <laughs> Over here, we just try and have a bit of education out for the community. This shares a little bit of information about what's happening today in the forecast. As you can see, there's a level one heat warning in effect. This sign will give folks walking by some information about where to go, how to keep your dogs and cats and pets cool, to where to go with your kids, to what to eat, to what to wear, to how to outfit your apartment to keep it cool. There's some education that needs to happen for everybody, right, as we learn how to cope with this kind of weather. We've got about 300 seniors that we're in regular contact with, so our plan is in the event of a serious heat emergency, most of our staff would be repurposed to going through that list, calling people, saying, hey, how's it going? You know, how are you dealing with the heat? Our staff are trained by Vancouver Coastal to start to assess if a person showing signs of heat exhaustion and then hopefully take some of the next steps to get them to somewhere safe.
The neighborhood is better prepared for the heat this summer, but what worries Siobhan is what other surprises climate change might bring. This is the thing, is that climate change is this great human experiment. We don't know, I think, exactly what the implications of this are going to be, whether that's in the short term, the next few years, or the decades to come. I don't know if any of us would have anticipated that last year there would be a period of time where the lower mainland was virtually cut off by rail or by road to the rest of the country. You know, it boggles the mind to think of these kinds of things. So, you know, how how creative can we be when we don't know what we don't know? One thing that has been on our mind is that many of our folks live in these high-rise towers. Well, what happens in a power outage? You know, are they still able to use the elevators to get down, you know, to get to safety? Do we need to build contingency plans there? You know, there's so many different aspects to think about. And I think, you know, the more we can look to the experience of other communities and prepare as much as we can, hopefully the more we can keep people safe when it matters. The seniors' lunch is over and everyone has headed home with their cool kits for their post-lunch nap, says Siobhan. But the staff still has work to do. Hi, guys. You want to come get some free water? Stay cool. Bring the little baby over. Hi there, you guys want some cold water? We got free bottled water. Come on over. You you live right there? Yeah. Okay, then I'll be over for some cold water to see you. (laughs) Take care. Anyway. Hi there, my name is Jess Coombs, and I work at Gordon Neighborhood House, and I'm part of the team here to um, make sure everybody's staying cool this summer. We're all in it together for the better of our community, and that's what Gordon Neighborhood House sort of represents, and that's why I came to work here. Do you live in the community here, the West End? Yes, I do. I'm 62, so I've been here probably almost all those years. When it comes to the impacts of climate change, heat waves, other weather-related emergencies, what role can community play? I guess for me, an old 62-year-old, it's a learning curve for me, and it's basically making sure in my building I'm checking on my neighbours. And and as I'm learning here at Gordon House, the philosophy as well is just pitching together, making sure everybody's okay. We're all learning about climate change and how to keep us all safe. Myself I'm learning, people are learning, and we pitch together at Gordon Neighbourhood House to educate everybody. Gordon is collaborating with other neighbourhood houses around the city to make plans that work for the unique needs of the people they serve. The safety plan, it's a work in progress. But just as I'm about to leave, a clear sign of community in action. A nice citizen out of the blue just gave us this. A neighbor came by to restock the cooler for you. That's so nice. You are awesome. Thank you very, very much. Are you like a nurse or something? I mean, you're giving to us. We appreciate it. Oh, no, I just love Vancouver and the community, so... No, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Have a nice weekend. Take care. That's awesome. Sweet and amazing. In Vancouver, I'm Rachel Sanders. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth here on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Anayat Singh in for Laura Lynch. And we want to hear from you. So if you're taking some climate action in your life, let us know. 
The email address is earth at cbc.ca or you can DM us on Twitter at CBC What on Earth. If you could pick one image that comes to mind when I say polar bear, what would it look like? Is it in a zoo or is it adrift on sea ice? In the 90s and 2000s, some environmental and conservation groups used polar bears as the face of global warming. And while human-caused climate change is warming the Arctic more than double the average rate in the rest of the world, how it's affecting polar bears is a bit more complicated than images can convey. Producer Molly Siegel explores the nuances of this climate icon. There's this image from 2017 shot near Baffin Island, Nunavut. You might know it. It's a video of an emaciated polar bear walking slowly, struggling to survive. It appears to be dying. National Geographic released this video. And as the sad music plays, text appears. It says... This is what climate change looks like. It turned out that was too simple an explanation. But that technique, using a polar bear as the poster animal for climate change, was the result of a few things. But for now, let's start with the science. Polar bears as an as a icon of climate change, I think has provided a lot of people insights onto what warming means on a planetary perspective. Andrew DeRoche is a scientist and professor at the University of Alberta. He's studied polar bears for nearly 40 years. The beauty of polar bears is a really simple system. They rely on sea ice as their primary habitat. And we can see very clearly from a separate body of information that comes from sea ice scientists that the ice is disappearing. So most people understand that if you take away the habitat of an animal, you basically can't have that animal persist in that environment anymore. There's always been a a lot of fascination uh, from the public about polar bears. I sort of put it down to this idea that it's kind of the original beauty and the beast. They're beautiful to look at. Um, But of course, if you're up close to them, they're quite dangerous. And so there's always this freeze-on of fear that comes with bears and being around bears. But because polar bears are far away, um, they're not really threatening to most people in the world. So there's this fascination that comes with them. And they live far away in this sort of ethereal, mythical place, the Arctic, where most people we'll never visit and we'll never see up close. I'll return to this idea later of how this icon from the Arctic used outside of the Arctic came to be. But if you ask someone who lives near polar bears, they'll give you a different answer about the polar bear as a symbol of global warming. We must not judge based on one or two pictures that we see. Look at the overall picture, you know, look at the the bears are surviving and thriving and carrying on. My name is uh, Derek Bottle. I'm from Rigla, I'm in, in Inuk. You know, Rigla's been my home uh, pretty much all of my life. When I reached Derek Pottle, he's recently come back from a trip at sea, on board a National Geographic vessel. He works as a guide. He's also a carver and a hunter. The bear is, uh, Nunuk is probably about the most powerful 
animal or mammal that we have in our homelands. We respect it. Uh, we understand its strength, its intelligence, its means of survival, the will that it has to live, and it represents who we are very much so. We live in this harsh, harsh environment, but we thrive here. He's hunted 10 polar bears over the decades. Well, I was born in 1957, so I'm getting a little bit long in the tooth. Still, Pottle remembers the first time he saw a polar bear. He was about six years old. Somehow it almost seems like a dream it was that long ago, but I remember a great-grandmother and a great-grandfather, and uh, my grandfather and my father, if they had an opportunity, they would harvest a bear, but, you know, it was always hush-hush because... Uh, People were intimidated by the authorities. They thought that weren't supposed to kill them. And if uh, if you got caught, they you're terrified that they would drag you off to jail or, or take your what little bit you had away from you. But uh, people kept that hush-hush. And he says being hush-hush was a contrast to how things were for thousands of years. Back in the day, a boy became a man when you harvest your first polar bear in, you know, in most Inuit areas, you know, throughout Inuit Nunagak, uh, our land, like from the Inuvialuit region right over to Greenland. You know, all I ever wanted to be was a hunter and a harvester and a provider. And I, you know, I tried to do my very best and everything I could to achieve that goal. I have the same feeling this past April is what I did when I harvest my first bear uh, back in the 80s, the feeling of appreciation and of how that bear have given itself to me, and uh, I treat it with the utmost respect, utilize every part of it that I can, and share what I don't consume myself. Scientists divide polar bears up into subpopulations, smaller groups of the animals living in a specific area. There are 19 of these in the world. 13 are in Canada. But one group of polar bears in particular has become world famous, you could say, Hudson Bay. Scientists had been monitoring polar bears there, and that was before any link had been made to global warming and what it could mean for polar bears. So the link to climate change really evolved out of some work that I was doing in my PhD, and we were looking at uh, body condition over time in that population. And so this is in western Hudson Bay. It's by far the best studied polar bear population anywhere in the world. This is the one that's based around Churchill, Manitoba. And so we had seen that there were some changes in how big the bears were, how fat they were, and there had been this progressive decline over time. And that was sort of one of the first indications that something was changing. Deroche says by the early 1990s, other scientists were making observations about sea ice trends. Almost 30 years ago, he co-authored a paper that combined their work on polar bears in Hudson Bay and what was being observed with sea ice. Up until that point, that 1993 paper, we weren't really monitoring sea ice at all. So nobody was in the polar bear world was looking at that relationship between sea ice and polar bears and body condition and reproduction and survival. So it was really sort of that awakening that occurred around the early 1990s. Let's talk about that awakening for a moment. In the Arctic, the oceans freeze at the surface, forming chunks of ice that float. And it plays a role in keeping the Arctic cold, reflecting sunlight away. 
The ice is also part of the ecosystem, holding nutrients and contributing to the entire food web, from phytoplankton up to the various types of seals that polar bears hunt. Some sea ice melts in the summer and reforms in the winter. When the sea ice melts, polar bears come ashore. And the data was starting to show that trend in timing was shifting. Uh, we could see that the sea ice was changing, that bears were coming ashore earlier, and some years definitely going back onto the sea ice a lot later. In 1999, CBC's Eve Savory reported from the field with scientists studying polar bears near Churchill, Manitoba. A pregnant bear in this area tucks herself away in one of these cool earth dens dug into the permafrost. Polar bears started getting more and more attention in the media. But with warming, every day of earlier breakup is one day less for the mother to rebuild her stores of energy for the coming summer of hunger. The scientists have found that for every week the ice breaks up earlier, the bears come ashore 10 kilos lighter. And I think it was actually when we sat down again in 2004 and reassessed the status of knowledge about polar bears and climate change that we really realized just that how fast the changes had come in the Arctic. By now, the world was paying close attention to polar bears. And in 2006, former Vice President Al Gore released an inconvenient truth. Starting in 1970, there was a precipitous drop-off in the amount and extent and thickness of the Arctic ice cap. It has diminished by 40% in 40 years. In Vice President Al Gore's film, there's a small vignette of a polar bear. That's not As Al Gore speaks, a computer-animated polar bear swims through an ice floe. A new scientific study shows that for the first time, they're finding polar bears that have actually drowned, swimming long distances, up to 60 miles, to find the ice. Just two years later, in 2008, the United States listed the polar bear as a threatened species. And in 2011, it was listed in Canada as a species of special concern. Deroche says at this time, climate deniers were also taking note. They tried to come at it from lots of different angles. The drowning polar bears. The relationship between polar bears and sea ice. Trying to harness any doubt to argue a case against human-caused climate change. By the 2000s, polar bears had become a climate icon, for better or worse. But it became sort of the villain for the people and those interest groups that didn't want to see climate action, i.e. controls of greenhouse gas emissions. And so we ended up with these very interesting dynamics between the conservation groups on one side, the status quo no greenhouse gas emission control groups on the other side, and then scientists like myself in the middle saying, look, we just collect data and put it together and say, this is what we see is happening to polar bears. DeRoche and his colleagues were out there making observations, publishing peer-reviewed papers. But the ways in which the work was getting used wasn't always completely accurate. He says climate deniers were sowing confusion. But also... Some of the environmental groups... I think, tried to oversell the story of climate change and polar bears. Um, there's sort of been some pluses and minuses to polar bears as the icon uh, of climate change. For hunter Derek Pottle in Nunatsiavut, Labrador, on balance, 
the outcome of the polar bear as climate symbol clearly skews one way. You know, from my experience, it's more negative than what it is positive. We used to make a good living on selling polar bear hides, and uh, you were proud to do that hard work. It was hard work, and but it made us very, very, it made us, it fulfilled us as Inuit. Uh, you know, you were so happy and so proud to bring back uh, food and a meat source and an opportunity to make a few dollars for your family or, or put clothing on your back uh, through what you did. But every year is getting more and more challenging to do uh, to do what we do uh, because somewhere in Europe or somewhere across the world, uh, we have these activists that's putting stops to, uh, to what we do. Nunatsiavut allows for 12 polar bears to be hunted each year. It shares that population of polar bears from the Davis Strait with part of Nunavut, Nunavik in Quebec, as well as Greenland. Before climate change was part of that discussion, Arctic countries from around the world signed an agreement in 1973 to conserve polar bears by working together to manage them. And it's worked. Andrew DeRoche. We've got more bears now than we did in 1973. The challenge is we have also very good information that at least three populations of polar bears have declined due to the loss of sea ice. And we suspect that that pattern will just increase as more and more populations of bears are affected by declining sea ice. So it's a complex issue. Well, things are complex. Pottle feels that on-the-ground knowledge from Inuit including hunters like himself, is not properly taken into account when decisions are being made about polar bears. This is not to be disrespectful to, you know, the people that's there at the tables, but why wouldn't you involve the people who know best? I mean, we're the people that on the land. We're actually hands-on. It's We're out there where the rubber meets the road, and this is what we're seeing. We try to share that with science, and we try to share that with academics, and we try to share that with levels of government. But there's a lot of times when I feel that our voices are never heard. DeRoche says we have to zoom in on each subpopulation to truly understand their current health. The rate of sea ice change is different across the Arctic, so polar bears can be doing well in one area, but not in another. Hudson Bay, where DeRoche has done most of his research, is considered the south end of the polar bear's range, in Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec. Polar bears also make a living in the northernmost part of the Yukon, Northwest Territories, Newfoundland and Labrador, and then Nunavut. The government there plays a role in managing or monitoring more than half of all of the polar bears in the world. My name is Jasmine Ware. I am the polar bear biologist for the government of Nunavut. I am based in Igloolik, Nunavut. So bears live across these diverse ecosystems within the Arctic and within Nunavut. uh, They range all the way from the south all the way to, to the top and from the east to the west. And so when we think about how polar bears are doing overall in Nunavut, what we've been able to find through our research is that they are doing well for now. But that's not to say that the conditions where these polar bears are doing well aren't changing. Every polar bear in the world has experienced a change in their access to sea ice in the last 30 years. What we're noticing is that there seem to be, at this time, differential effects depending on where you are 
in the Arctic. So Davis Strait, Chukchi Sea, McClintock Channel, Gulf of Boothia, they've all experienced a lot of sea ice loss and changes. But that is where ecosystem and the nuances of the area come into play and potentially a, a threshold. Western Hudson Bay, where Churchill is, is in the one of the southernmost extent of polar bear. In a new report published in July, scientists, including Andrew DeRoche, caution that polar bears coming into contact with human food is a, quote, emerging threat. With climate change, one of the factors keeping polar bears on land for longer and coming into contact with stuff biologists call attractants, that includes our trash. We're seeing more and more bears going into dumps. And so this is happening from James Bay right through to the high Arctic communities. And that's a recipe for problems, not only for people living in these communities, but also for polar bears. So as we see polar bears declining in abundance, uh, the last thing we want to have is more conflict kills where bears are being shot to uh, improve human safety. But at the end of the day, if we want to have polar bears, we have to have safe communities. I mean, nobody wants to have their children going to school thinking that they're going to walk into a polar bear that could kill them. For many people living in the Arctic, around the world, and in Canada, this is not a faraway issue. Bears are in their backyard, so to speak. In July, in Rankin Inlet, Nunavut, Wayne Kusigak spoke to CBC's Juanita Taylor after a close call with a polar bear. I was wondering why there was a Nanook polar bear right in front of the Nineplex. And I started, it heard my vehicle, so it started running away. And so I sped up and I started thinking about people that are walking. And sure enough, there was some, a lady walking, went to go get coffee. So, so I quickly revved my vehicle and I went right in between the Nanook and her. And she started screaming. I unlocked my vehicle and we started chasing it right in town. No, <laughs> I'm still shaking. It's, it's freaked me out. Daniel Kalujak with Nunavut's Department of Environment responded to the call. He used bear bangers to chase the animal away. In Rankin, it's very rare, right in town. Uh, this year, we have high number of bears um, call-outs. Um, I'm guessing due to all the moving ice that was here for last couple months. A lot of things go through your mind when dealing with dangerous animals. Um, just stay calm and um, just hope the bear goes the way you want it to go. Um, this, this one was not too bad to chase out of Rankin. Um, we're hoping it doesn't come back. This might be an unusual event in Rankin Inlet, but in Arviat, about 230 kilometers south, Biologist Jasmine Ware says it's a story that unfolds a lot. We do know Akbir has the most human bear interactions, probably of any community. I could think that's fair to say in Nunavut. And in 2018, an encounter between a young man and a polar bear was fatal. It started out as a harvesting trip for Aaron Gibbons. The 31-year-old was with his kids on an island near Arviat, where people commonly go to fish or gather duck eggs. The area is a hotbed for polar bear sightings, but last night, it turned fatal. 
Gibbons was unarmed and placed himself between the approaching bear and his children. He was pronounced dead at the scene. There is a change in terms that a bear could be encountered at any time and a very, very strong understanding that this is a dangerous experience and can be fatal. This is reality for uh, Nunavumiat. Follow the west coast of Hudson Bay, 300 kilometers south of Arviat, and you'll find Churchill, Manitoba. Every year, polar bears make their way from near Churchill up north towards Arviat before the sea ice forms again. Scientists studying bears in Hudson Bay might be seeing a decline, but people in Nunavut tell where there are more bears there than ever. She explains it could partly be a shift in where bears are spending their time, how long they are sticking around, as well as other factors, like maybe more of them are coming into closer contact with people. And where there are people, there are also sources of food. In 2010, the Arviat Hunters and Trappers Organization, as well as other groups, started up a polar bear patrol program in the community. I live in Arviat, Nunavut, and my name is Leo Iskapek. Then I do the polar bear monitor here in Arviat. Yeah, even just three days ago, there was a, a polar bear right down by the point dump road, we call that. So there was a, like a juvenile bear that was coming right towards the uh, dump, but somebody happened to be driving around with a vehicle and uh, bumping to that poor bear. When Ikahik sees a bear, he uses bear bangers, which make a loud noise to deter the animal. And he carries a rifle as backup, which he says he's been lucky enough not to use over the past 12 years. I wonder if the bear's going to run or is the bear going to just stand his ground so it's always um, a guessing game when you get a phone call. There's a bear, and you got to go to the site to try to deter the bear. And sometimes it's, it's, yeah, it's a little scary. Ikahi can see that the Arctic is changing. But for now, he also sees plenty of polar bears coming through Arviat. The climate change is changing things, but still, like, they're out where they are born and where they in their natural habitat and all that. For polar bears, Arviat and Churchill are connected. That isn't new. Arviat is on their annual migration when the ice melts in the summer, before polar bears return south as the ice forms in the winter. If they don't have enough food, they look elsewhere. Our trash could be a feast to a bear that hasn't bulked out enough on seals. It's a problem the town of Churchill has faced for decades. In Churchill, the hunt for polar bears within the town limits has become deadly serious. That's because a big hungry animal you can't see can be deadly. A week ago, a bear mauled a tourist. As Karen Webb reported for CBC's The National in 1983. The problem is for Churchill, this is warm. And that means the ice can't freeze solidly on Hudson Bay. And that means the bears can't get out to hunt seal. And that means they're hungry very hungry. They come to the dump on the edge of town to scrounge. Some of them go into town. Mike Spence is the mayor of Churchill. He grew up there, and he remembers how the dump used to attract polar bears. I remember going there, and there would be, I think we counted 33 bears of mothers and cubs going through the rubble, um, going through the fire, putting a, uh, pulling a bag out and going through it and salvaging through that. and So that was quite common. And it wasn't a pretty sight. Scientist Andrew DeRoche. 
they closed that dump in 2005, and they actually had a really good management system in place that deal with conflict bears. Their polar bear alert program is, is sort of the gold standard of what you can do to try to keep bears away from people. The open dump, where bears accessed food for decades, was shut down. Now, waste gets sent to a facility that's secure. Bears can't access it. Churchill works with Polar Bears International. The town has a polar bear alert program. There's a phone number that people can call to report a polar bear. And a compound of cells, like a jail, where captured bears are held before some are relocated. And what the town learns about living with bears. Polar Bears International passes that information along to other parts of the Arctic facing similar problems. Whether it's in other parts of northern Canada or Greenland or Norway or Russia or wherever. So we're a model. And anything that uh, we're experimenting on, and if it's working or if it's not working, so it's passed on to other communities that will experience bears. The thing about polar bears, and other animals for that matter, is that there's a carrying capacity. The number of animals a landscape can support sustainably. But there's also what communities can support. And those two numbers may not be the same. Derek Pottle in Nunatsiavut in Labrador does his part to help reduce conflict between people and polar bears. There's been bear attacks, there's been people killed, there's been people mauled, and uh, it's a whole educational process. I've been training people now for the last 16 years in educating people with bear awareness. I'm a certified instructor to train and certified bear guards or bear monitors, which protects people out on the land. Across the Arctic, looking at the coming decades, scientists predict continued sea ice loss. But a lot is up to us. To keep things cold, we have to stop emitting greenhouse gases. With heat waves, wildfires, and floods showing up with more force and more frequency in many communities across Canada, Andrew DeRoche says it's changing the face of global warming for many. For the longest time, this was an Arctic issue. It was a polar bear issue. It was something far away in the future. And now I think people understand there's been this issue that um, it's, it's coming to where I live and we're going to have to deal with it. For What on Earth, I'm Molly Siegel. Thanks, Molly. And a special thank you to our colleague Vanita Taylor in Yellowknife. That's it for us this week. Associate producer Zoe Yonker and producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel worked on this week's show. Special thanks to Lara Antonelli in Toronto. What on Earth includes associate producer Danielle Piper. Our senior producer is Manisha Janakiram. I'm Inayat Singh. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.